I'd love it if you could do the twist one more time. You just wait. All hell's gonna break loose. I don't wanna have a fight right now. Then stop talking. I've got some ideas we can kick around, but you're gonna have to tell me your name, sweetheart. I'm Peggy Olson, and I wanna smoke some marijuana. By golly, you're prickly. I'll cut the cheese. <laughs> well, that's a relief. Your asses are going to wear out those chairs. We got it. You're educated. This is not civilian conversation. No one thinks you're happy. They think you're foolish. This episode of Mad Men Men contains disturbing audio related to podcasts in America. One of the hosts is shown in... Oh, sorry. Uh, welcome to Mad Men Men, the weekly show where we discuss a show that used to come out weekly. Each week, we take a close look at an episode of the AMC series Mad Men, which ran from 2007 to 2015. We're changing the conversation of the show all these years later, where one of us was a first-time watcher of the show. One went through it uh, a while back when it was airing. And then there's me, who watches it about once a week. I'm John Negroni, though some just call me a 55 coxman. And uh, over here, fresh off his 30th birthday, he is Will Ashen, and he is so high. What up? Um, so I was going to ask you before uh, I forget, that little uh, introduction, that thing that you were reading off that starts the episode, Is that was that on the original, like when it aired no, on AMC? That, that's only that because... Was- Okay. BLM, like 2020, I think was when that happened. Okay. Remember when there was like that whole era, that era, it was like a few months when a bunch of corporations were like trying like to be like, you know, sensitive and yeah. doing like the black tiles and like, and then a bunch of TV shows changed their episodes. That's what that is. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's what I thought. Um, because I just think it's kind of funny, I guess, or ironic that like they, uh, on Hulu, I think they like, just straight up took episodes off without warning that had any like right. reference or inclusion of blackface. So like there were like several, that's several, like 30 least, rock. Yeah. I was gonna say there's a 30 rock episode where John Hamm does blackface and they just like, Voop, that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and then in this episode, you scrubs. see, uh, yeah, scrubs as well. Uh, there are like a few episodes of scrub, I think where they have blackface. I know there's also like a, uh, always sunny a couple episodes where they do blackface. So they the D and D episode of uh, community. That one I thought was a bit of a stretch. And by bit, I mean extremely much. <laughs> totally. But anyway, uh, we do have a third person. You heard his voice. Uh, Mike Overholse. One day you'll look back on this podcast and smile. Just don't get pregnant. I also have some beef with your intro here today as well, John. Um, technically, we all watch Mad Men at least once a week or else we couldn't do this podcast. You know what it is? It's like I had it written down that like, I watch it once a year, but I felt like that's a, underselling it. So it's like, yeah, what's it, a week? If, if, that's, is, if it was once a year, you, you wouldn't be you know prepping for these episodes. I'd be concerned. Technically, I watched it two to three times a week, but not lately because we took a break. But anyway. No one can trust you, John. You've lied like four times in the last 30 <laughs> seconds. How many times do you watch this damn show? <laughs> who knows i like will with the uh, seasons one and two i guess mm. uh okay we're talking about season three episode three nice little uh you know connection there uh, a little mirror uh this episode came out august 30th 2009 14 years ago almost uh written by davi waller and matthew weiner uh, directed by jennifer getzinger it's called my old kentucky home and uh davi waller one of the co-writers i don't think this person um i'm not sure gender wise uh who this person is uh, a woman okay so davi waller she i don't think has done any other episode this might be her first one i'm just like kind of quickly running through it and yeah i do not see her name anywhere else uh but matthew weiner i think he has written an episode of mad men before <laughs> um and then jennifer getzinger that name is pretty familiar yeah she directed uh the new girl 
last season, and she might have also done the first season. No, she didn't. Okay. So this is, I guess, her second episode. Now, uh, in terms of ratings, this one was a bit of a dip from the last two. Uh, So we talked about how the first episode of season three, you know, big ratings, uh, 2.76, highest in the show's history up until that point, I believe. And then it dipped down after that expectedly to 1.9. This one dipped down to 1.61. Yeah, So, you know, a, a bit of a modest decline, uh, but we'll keep tracking that as the season goes forward. Um, in terms of what this episode is doing, I mean, this is a, oof, this is, this is an interesting one. This is, this is one of those episodes where you're kind of like, Matt, you're got you're, you're starting to feel the Mad Men tone a little bit more. It's especially like how different it is from season one, for sure. Like, look at this episode and look at an episode from season one, and you can kind of tell like how far the writers have taken this concept. So I got to go to you, Will. Mm. Um, first timer, what was your sure. reaction to 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 this this beautiful little episode of television i mean uh, i think i told you this already off the air but i was planning to watch this episode at work uh like i had some downtime between the shows i was gonna just like oh squeeze in a little bit of Mad Men, and that title card watch it with my black coworkers, right and (laughs) and that title card came up (laughs) (laughs) and i was like uh i guess i'll have to watch this one at home (laughs) but um so i mean you know, if you have a title card like that, you know that the episode's going to be a little spicy. Like, it's not like, you know. <laughs> uh, though I do agree that, like, um, I, I do remember there is, like, that era, I guess, as you called it, where corporations and streamers were just, like, putting, uh, like, you know, those titles before not only racially insensitive episodes, but, like, just episodes that could potentially offend somebody. Like, I, I saw someone on Letterbox note that uh, on Disney+, Plus there's, like, a title card before Mr. Magoo that says, this is not an accurate depiction of blind people. And it's like, <laughs> oh, okay, that's good to know. I was going into Mr. Magoo thinking this is how blind people are. <laughs> to be fair, look, 2020 was a weird, weird time. Yeah. And we don't have to relitigate what happened. Um, I don't think any of us are ready. Sure. But uh, I, I should probably read the title card so people have a little bit more context if, uh, if they watched this episode a long time ago and they didn't see it. This is the first time I had seen it, um, quite personally. But you said you watch the show every week. Yeah. And then Mike said that I lie four times. <laughs> um, yeah, because I, I haven't rewatched the show since I think right before uh, 2020. So there you go. Because that's when we started talking about doing this because I wanted to rewatch it. And we've been doing it very slowly. Hmm. Um, anyway, uh, so this is what the title card says. Uh, this episode contains disturbing images related to race in America. One of the characters is shown in blackface as part of an episode that shows how commonplace racism was in America in 1963. Which, by the way, my reaction to that was, uh, oh, in 1963. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was commonplace back then. Um, anyway, in its reliance on historical authenticity, the series producers are committed to exposing the injustices and inequities within our society that continue to this day. So we can examine even the most painful parts of our history in order to reflect on who we are today and who we want to become. We are therefore presenting the original episode in its entirety. I, I pretty much agree with this completely. I mean, I, I think that there is value to show that like, yeah, in 2009, this was not something like you go to like the reviews of this episode uh, online, very, very few, like they mentioned the the blackface, but it was such a sort of like, oh yeah, we're a post, like that was in the past. It's okay to sort of like show this stuff. Obviously that kind of has changed in years when like people are like, you know what, this is not a game. (laughs) And uh, we're, we're pretty far away. Are you implying that 
people like critics at the time were like, we're in Obama's America, therefore we don't have to mention yes. blackface. <laughs> yes. Well, it, people blame it on like the Obama's America thing. I think it's more of a West Wing syndrome, quite honestly. Oh, okay. You know, I think it's like, look, you and I, we didn't really like come about uh, in that time as fully. We were still kind of, we were young, you know, we were teenagers basically. And uh, Mike, I mean, he was, he was rocking that cradle. Uh, but <laughs> no, I, I think this is the right message to say. It's like, we're going to show the original episode. This is what the episode was. Uh, you know, here's your warning. Like, you know, this isn't that that's something. Um, but I, I think that that's the right sentiment, you know? I think there's also a lot to be said about how they did use it in the episode. Um, and I think it was for like a very specific characterization of storytelling. Um, mm-hmm. it didn't feel, you know, egregious in, in any way, if anything, even, how they just like hard cut to it and like you're not expecting it. And all of a sudden you're on this close up of, of Roger's face in, in, in this blackface. Um, I actually think it's a, it's a pretty powerful scene. Yeah. The main character is uncomfortable. Although like you could read that a few different ways of like, is he really uncomfortable about the racism? No, he just thinks that because as we find out at the end of the episode, he just thinks Roger's making a fool of himself. And I think the, the bigger tell the clear tell to me is like watching Carla's interactions with grandpa Jean. And showing the like the contrast between, you know, her place in the household, not even being able to sit at the table, having to deal with this grumpy old racist man versus, you know, this derby day that's like, look how nostalgic we are about the 20s. It's a meta, you know, it's like they're looking back on the 20s, 40 years in the past. And then we're kind of doing the same thing, the showrunners looking back in the 1960s. And, you know, there's a certain type of person who watches Mad Men and kind of relishes in the bad stuff almost. Um, and it's sort of the people who make the show being like, yeah, you're dumb <laughs> because there's not much, uh, you know, th- there's a lot of context that you leave out when you wistfully look back in the fifties and sixties without really criticizing the time for, you know, how it wasn't so great for everybody else. Yeah. I mean, um, I think we have seen like that, those kind of title cards before, like different things like Looney Tunes and different, uh, mm-hmm piece of entertainment uh in the past and i think you know as much as we were kind of joking about i do think i much prefer that as opposed to uh you know someone just trying to like yank the episode or edit it because you right. can't like edit that scene it's the, the reason like the source of the title of the episode my own kentucky home like it's like that's where it comes from and so you can't it would be awkward if they took it out and also i just feel like it's only going to be worse when corporations like hulu just take episodes wholesale out because it's like you're not really acknowledging it you're just trying to like kind of make yourself look better by being like oh those don't exist like uh you just thought those episodes were real they're not there it's just like that's the key isn't it it's like you're making yourself feel better or trying to cover your ass instead of like actually make something better for the people that it really affects right and i mean as you're saying like mad men is so good about like wrestling with past and like the sins of our uh our past and culturally personally etc cetera, etc cetera. and yeah i mean obviously racism still presides today it's not a thing of the past as i mean it is a thing of the past but still a thing of today and yeah i mean it may not be exactly in this form but i mean you know it, it's something that this episode wrestles with i think thoughtfully it's not you know just done in haste it's almost like this episode or mad men in general ages really well because i think they unintentionally or accidentally like had this commentary on like what polite society is really like right and like we've seen it over and over again over the seasons but this is very similar 
to how racism and systemic racism and stuff operates in like our current society. I mean, you have people who are just like monstrous racists, but they're people like Roger who you like. He would you hang out with at an office and you've seen him be very sexist. You've seen him be a terrible person, but you've also seen that people really like him, that people get along with him. And that then is kind of about like how monstrous people are everywhere. And, you know, it's not like, you know, the world is not so black and white the way that I think media, like when we were growing up, it was very, very preachy, you know, it was very like, you know, movies and TV shows about like racism and stuff like that was very on the nose. It was very like, you know, uh, this person's very bigoted. He has a scowl because he doesn't want, you know, the, the, the white people and the black people to hang out, you know, or this person is, you're racist if you say bad things. And it, it doesn't really examine like, oh, like, there's racism in a lot of like places where you wouldn't expect it if you ingested that kind of diet, which is that's kind of getting into like the West Wing syndrome of like racism is this big hairy beast that used to exist. And sometimes it exists in these people over here. But most people aren't like that. Uh, and instead, I think like we've all kind of uh, as millennial people, <laughs> we've kind of seen that that be uh, turned on its head quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, I will say in regards to that scene, uh, normally I am team uh, Trudy. I, I like Trudy a lot. I feel bad for her. And I think she's a great dancer in this episode, but she was enjoying Roger's song and dance too much for mm-hmm. for me. I, I was just like, Trudy, you're going to have to take an L on this one. This is this is not good. <laughs> this is not a good look for you. Well, she belonged to a club like that, you know, so that's nothing new for her. I like one thing I caught in this episode that I hadn't really noticed before is the difference. The This movie's all this uh, episode is all about contrast, right? So there's such a contrast between Pete and Trudy and Harry and Jude or not Judy, Harry and Jennifer. Um, Whereas like they didn't grow up in this lifestyle. They are like, you know, they didn't grow up in a club. You know, Trudy says like, oh, you know, I went to a club like this. Trudy gets along with Betty, who's kind of a similar thing. They come from money. So they know the proper etiquette. They know how to like build everything up. And uh, you see that through this episode, like they're so comfortable that the swing dancing thing is like a very direct sort of like you see Harry and Jennifer get pushed out of the dance floor. And I love it because it's also the show saying that like, yeah, there's racism, but also classism, you know, it's almost like this subtle commentary on like how people of like, you know, people can be marginalized based on their, their wealth, uh, their, uh, you know, their, their class, their status, um, as well as their race and how that all sort of like intercedes. It's actually, it's really smart storytelling because it does it without sort of like, you know, looking at the camera and being like, hello, you know, John Hamm here. (laughs) It's time to talk about this episode. I wouldn't even say it's that subtle in this episode, right? Because beyond just that contrast of who is at the Derby Day is you have the working, the creatives being forced by the people at the party to stay over the weekend and work. And what are they doing? Smoking pot, which is a very like working class, like type drug and activity to do. Right. That's probably like why the secretary is sort of like, so taken aback, you know, and then so disapproving because she's like, you're not thinking about your future, you know, but she's not thinking clearly about like, like Peggy has to tell her, hi, no less. Like I have an office, like I have a secretary. What's up, girl? <laughs> like, What you talking about? I'm good. Yeah. I mean, Peggy's reaction, I guess, to weed is pretty fascinating to me in the sense that like, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm not going to divulge my history with marijuana, but I feel like it's legal in Pennsylvania, isn't it? Uh, medically, it is. But uh, I would say that Peggy is maybe the most clear headed high person I've ever seen. 911 <laughs> or 911. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So Mike um, <laughs> held up his phone and said 911. The joke obviously being that he's going to call the cops on Will. Right. And Will immediately interpreted that as 9-11. Brilliant. Beautiful. Nah, man. You can't, you know, you can't script something like that. AI will never be able to recreate this. No, I know. Wow, you can't legally possess marijuana in Pennsylvania as it's still considered illegal under state law. That surprises me. I feel like, because there's, I think, half the country now, uh, almost, it, it's legal. Um, well, I mean, maybe by the time this episode comes out, uh, it'll be legal in the state of Pennsylvania. I would hope so. <laughs> you know, well, what, what is Don Draper able to smoke? He's from Pennsylvania by way of Illinois. Exactly. Um, but I was going to say about Don, uh, since you kind of teed it up, I, I appreciate, as we we're talking about with the classism, that uh don and jane are kind of in a similar position this episode in the sense that like they're both seemingly kind of work if i can recall correctly kind of like working class people or at least people that didn't go in like didn't grow up in this lifestyle and that they're kind of putting on like a costume by being here with jane it's a lot yeah, more jane is jewish apparent. um so she yeah. kind of comes from uh some call her mary jane um Pe- peggy calls her that yeah uh, yeah and paul um but i was just saying the but like Jane has like these big kind of outrageous outfits in this episode. Like she's taking the role of uh, being Roger's wife, like as if it's like almost kind of performative. Like she's like, well, she's trying to be Jackie. Oh, right. You know, because Roger wants to see himself as a young JFK. There's a nice thing going on there. It kind of reminds me, uh, this is more current events thing, but very, very recently, um, the Florida governor, his wife did a very, very similar thing where she like dressed up as Jackie. O, uh, Jackie Kennedy, um, Jackie would come later. Uh, Jackie Kennedy in like the, you know, sort of the Audrey Hepburn-esque sort of like get up 1960s with like these big elaborate gloves and everyone's just like, are you, are you cosplaying? Like what do you, it's 2023, not 1963. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I just, I think the contrast between uh, Don and Jane here is it's like Don just, he, he's playing the role as best he can until the end. Um, but he's still deeply uncomfortable with this. Like he just sees this as kind of a garish uh, spectacle and all that which it pretty much is uh and then jane is just trying to indoctrinate herself into it as much as possible uh also like to her detriment in the sense of, like she's not allowing herself to eat she's kind of just like not really looking out for her best interest she just wants to be the perfect housewife act like she belongs here feels like she's always been a part of this club and quite literally in this case and uh yeah i just uh think that's an interesting comparison point yeah jane is just like you don't like me like she's and roger's literally like get someone to get her a glass of milk like she's a child right and, and she is she's like she's only 21 um because last season she says like i'm 20 years old um she is still quite quite young uh mike we didn't really get a read on uh you didn't get a chance to say what you thought of this episode kind of overall I enjoy this episode. I think the contrasts between Roger and Don are extremely interesting. Um, I think uh, seeing uh, the continued comparison of the levels of respect of all the employees there is, is really interesting. You get that line of like, we all started here at the same time. And yet we can see the trajectories of the different careers in the eyes of, of Don too. Um, and then also that scene with Carla and um, I can't think of the the grandpa's name. Grandpa Jean, yeah. Grandpa Jean, give him a little Grandpa kiss Jean. on the cheek. Good night. At uh, the how tense that scene at the dinner table was. Like I was ready for him to smack the shit out of Kieran Shipka. Yeah, she was scared, and she had every right to be. I'm. I mean, obviously, what Roger did is worse than what Sally did. I, I'm going to preface that from the beginning. But I got a warning at the beginning from a title card about what Roger was going to do. I didn't get a warning about what Sally was going to do. So I was more taken aback 
when I saw Sally stole those five dollars, I was like, "What the fuck are you doing, Sally? I trusted you, <laughs> Sally." Sticky fingers. I mean, she was smoking cigarettes last season. I know uh, this one but that made her cool. Pockets. <laughs> yeah, stealing from her grandpa ain't cool. Yeah, that that ain't cool. That's an old man. You didn't earn those from your dementia grandpa isn't right. cool. <laughs> right. <laughs> but they, hey, maybe you could uh, overread it and be like, oh, it's, you know, the youth kind of stealing from the, the old. I mean, look, she's a baby boomer. She's getting her practice in early in terms of robbing another generation. <laughs> I was ready for her to, to pin it on Carla, too. The, also a baby boomer move. Yeah, there's this whole implication that, like, neither of them <clears throat> is really directly addressing, like, he think you know, him being accusing her of taking the money and her having to deal with that because it definitely you get the sense that both people have gone through this they know how this works uh what like what'll happen when the accusation comes through he even calls her viola at one point and then she's like they don't all know each other mr hosta <laughs> like it just it hits it hits well i mean because it's still so modern too right like if like still, if you like are a person in the modern day who has a housekeeper and something goes missing, right? It's the first thing you're doing and accusing them of. So again, just it's I think Mad Men being timeless on accident and also sometimes on purpose that makes this show so good. Couldn't have said it any better. Um, I did want to mention we get some setup stuff in this episode. A lot of setup stuff, you know, like the patio ad is still in progress. That that whole thing where they're looking for the Anne Margaret um person and and Harry's just kind of like staring. Like man, Harry sucks. Like. Will, are you on team anti-Harry yet? Are, are you there? I will say this episode, I felt a little bad for Harry just because he, he wasn't Ooh. able to. He wasn't able to dance. <laughs> he he remembered how many kids Dawn has. Wait, See, now, yeah, boo. I, now, because of that, I'm going to have to. When the, when the uh, uh, Roger scene came on, uh, Will started texting me. He's like, damn, dude, finally, this is what I wanted to see. <laughs> I'm right there with Harry, smiling and laughing and clapping. <laughs> um, Wait, was Harry enjoying it? I, I thought I I was just so I think caught they up. All were. Pete, I think Pete especially was. Um, and you can read that as definitely as like he's been to stuff like this, and like he's probably you know True. used to it and enjoys it a bit. You know, I was just so caught up in Trudy enjoying as much she did that that I was kind of just broke like, your heart. yeah, it broke my heart a bit. Uh, so I didn't even pay attention to as much who else was enjoying it other than knowing that Don didn't. And it's, it's interesting because like Don is usually somebody who he uses the past. He uses nostalgia to sell advertising. His discomfort in this scene very much, I think, speaks to how to him, this is like so like he's just so out of place. He just does not fit in here. Uh, it's interesting. There's that moment where, you know, the guy who works in the governor's office comes in and he's like, you know, really like laying it on thick with Betty. But you can tell like he's so at ease. He's so comfortable in this environment. Like he's able to be inside the club in that moment with Betty in a way that like Don isn't. Um, he's in the club, like he's in the bar. He's in the service area. There's a reason he has that conversation with that old man about like, oh, you know, we both kind of like have this background of like, oh, I, you know, I pissed in the trunk of you know, these people's cars, which I love so much. One of my favorite, uh, Don talking about his backstory moments in the show. Um, yeah, but is there anything you read out of that, Will? Because, you know, there's definitely a lot of like new characters flowing in here. Would you feel like kind of um, like maybe we're setting up stuff that's going to happen or yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you think about like where we were at this point in season two, like we were kind of getting a lot of the like Jimmy Barrett stuff and 
Like, I think this season's a little bit better, a little bit more graceful about incorporating what I presume is going to be set to follow in the episodes to come. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you guys know about that more than me, so I'm not going to say anything uh, that will uh, get me in trouble later. Yeah, I was going to say, ask me that question, John. Come on, go ahead. No, no, I'm not going to do anything. <laughs> Um, we haven't talked about Joan and Greg, uh, which the thing I love the most about this, like Greg is a surgery guy, right? And the first interact, like the first thing we see him do, it's like, you're a guy who does surgery. And the first thing we see him do is he yank um, the the, the plug of the vacuum from the outlet. And Joan is like, you're going to break that. And he's just like, ah. I'll just get a new one. It's like, oh, so then later when they're like, oh, you know, maybe he's been struggling a little bit. Also, very specifically, he says, I'll get one of my little screwdrivers and fix it. How the hell are you going to fix a plug with a screwdriver? Like, dude's detached. Yeah, we get the reveal. or It's more confirmation. I think a lot of us kind of can assume that the apartment they're in belonged to Joan um, because it, it does look like the one that she was in the first season. But yeah, in this episode is confirmed that like they moved into her apartment in the city and you start to see sort of the unraveling of like the story that she's been telling and she's been uh getting told by by this guy this guy who's been telling her like ah oh, you know what you know, I'm, I'm going to be chief chief of surgery, things are going great, but then we find out he doesn't talk to her about this stuff. So there's even more sort of like class warfare, classism going on in that interaction that they're having at the table where he's a little bit, you know, like he and Joan are certainly like a, a different sort of like class, right, than those other two uh, couples. And so like it's kind of carrying through and like Joan is kind of seeing herself as like, man, you know, I, I thought I was like marrying into this situation where I wouldn't have to worry about money. And it hits even harder when you rewatch the episode you see like that first interaction with her and Jane because Jane's the one who ended up with Roger and she is living that life that Ro- that Joan wanted right with Greg or Roger you know what I mean um it, it makes that oh that interaction with her and Peggy a few episodes ago in season two when she's trying to talk about like oh we're gonna get married at Christmas and he's a he's a doctor he helps up he helps patch up kids I and mean, it's just it's tragic it's sad and then she does her weird Al cosplay and it's even weirder I love that. Oh man, she's such a she has such a good voice. She kicks it. Is that her real voice or is that someone else that they got to like dub in? I would assume that was Christina Hendricks because I think she has like a musical background. Um, okay. Unfortunately, I couldn't get my hands on the commentary, uh, which probably would have like revealed some of this stuff. Mm. I do apologize. Sure. Uh, hard to get the some of the commentary uh, for season three, um, but we're working on it. Um, mm. That's it. In regards to Joan, like when she does that whole thing, she's performing, entertaining. Again, she's being relegated to like the help. You know what I mean? Like the person on stage instead of the host. Like there's right. even that thing where like Greg is telling her like, no, I don't sit at the head of the table. She's like this is your house and like she's trying to like push them to like that respectability that sort of thing and he is just like stuck you know in this like subservient mode to like the higher ups it's it's all expertly written besides the the money thing as well i think that's one of the things she really adored about roger was like the power he wielded and the more it's revealed that he or greg i always mess up anybody like the doctor's names, but um, just how much of a backbone he lacks. Um, and he, and then she's finding out clearly like he couldn't even surgically give himself a backbone. He's that bad mm-hmm. of a doctor. And it's especially weird too. Cause it's like not weird, but it's, it's really off putting the fact that like you're seeing them 
we're like what an episode or two removed from him raping her mm. and we're watching like them be in this situation i mean it's a good commentary on how like abuse and relationships work because like this is the kind of thing that happens right where something like that will happen and then it's not talked about it's not addressed it's not you know fixed or you know the right consequences and punishments don't happen for the perpetrator they just kind of flow into the next stage and it's a very like it's there like you can feel it see it hear it you know but you can't the characters aren't reckoning with it and it's hard to watch uh, all of the scenes with joan are hard to watch these these days it's kind of sad because she's one of my favorite characters and i just want her to succeed I mean, i'm glad you also brought the head of the table thing because like i mean with roger it's just not only is he wealthier but he's obviously uh you know physically and and in some respects emotionally more mature uh than joan uh, yeah i know hmm. but like hmm. Hmm. but compared to most men that that joan has to deal with like he he's a man and it seems like joan in replacing uh roger like she's found out like she's basically married to like you know uh, someone who isn't quite a man like he's just assuming the role of being a man you'll recall that when roger goes to visit the drapers in season one roger doesn't sit at the head of the table yeah. don does mm-hmm. right but no i mean i i also enjoyed the accordion scene because you know like um you know when they talk about like what instrument she plays and like they they kind of slowly reveal it's going to be accordion i'm thinking like oh is it going to be like a flute clarinet a violin like what what instrument does joan play you know can't be a piano unless they're going to like drag it into like the main room but it was like accordion was the least likely one i thought <laughs> so i was delighted uh nonetheless i thought that was a fun scene so i looked it up uh christina hendrix did play the uh the accordion for real and sang that was her voice um so according to the this uh, article on Slash Film. She was already an adept accordion player before Mad Men, uh, so they were able to work it in. The only thing she needed to learn was French for the scene. And so apparently she had a passion for the accordion, and um, wonderfully so. We do get a lot of characters singing this episode. Um, Roger, Jane, uh, Jane, uh, Joan, and... Um, Paul and uh, Fisher. They have, like, mm-hmm. they sing, like, instead of fighting. I do want to talk more about the, like, the Picardi rum stuff. Uh, the cute, like, how they're doing a... They have to do an advertisement about rum. I mean, no wonder it's hard. But they have to do an, uh, an advertisement about a Caribbean drink uh, a year away from the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, uh, man, I, I can't even imagine having to thread that line, you know? But I think, Will, you already kind of hinted at... Uh, or it was either Will or Mike. One of you hinted at how, like, they're all sort of, like, reacting differently to being high. She's the one who actually, like, is able to use it to be creative and, like, comes up with the ad at the very end. Even when Smitty is trying to get some action on the roof. Yeah, I mean, I I really applaud Peggy for being the most, uh, you know, straight-minded... <laughs> high person i've ever seen in my life uh yeah just <laughs> her first time it was too. a pretty yeah i know yeah but like she was just like so hyper aware she's like i'm high right now <laughs> my name is peggy olson uh, and i'm my name smoke is peggy marijuana right she didn't even cough that's the impressive part i mean it, it, i have never smoked cigarettes um but if you've smoked cigarettes and then you smoke pot doesn't that sort of like help you be like, i mean for, it? for a joint like that i, I guess yeah because it looked like a pretty small blunt to me but you know mm-hmm. what are you gonna do i've I, the only time i ever coughed was uh the first time i smoked a cigar because i was definitely not ready and i was very young like 10 years old now <laughs> um actually your first cigar thank you <laughs> I actually, I haven't smoked like legit pot like like that, like from a joint or anything. A lot. Very, very rare. I, I'm more of an edibles guy. I don't know about you two. Yeah, um, can't say that I'm similar in that regard. Um, I definitely, we talk about 2020 being a weird year. Yeah. Uh, 
I, uh, I, I smoked quite a bit of pot. And I'll say I, I didn't even like it that much. <laughs> like, I hate specifically like I would do a lot of bong rips and bong rips are just not fun because they're really harsh and they hurt. Yeah. One of our friends did that once when we were in L.A., like made it in the sink with like uh, just like a thing of water and like, oh, man, that that sucks. <laughs> I hated that so much. I have my edibles right here, though. Um, got some elderberry for for indica, you know, and then we're breaking them out. I just got this. It's uh, Space Jam. <laughs> oh, there's 911. Look, I live in California. I bought these like at the store. <laughs> we are good. I got these from Safeway. <laughs> <laughs> no, we actually have a really nice uh, distillery where I live. It's like connected to a winery. Um, I took my uh, my parents there and because my mom, like she came to visit and she was just like, my name is Nancy Negroni and I want to smoke. <laughs> no, she legit was like, hey, is there a dispensary around here? And there you go. We got some stuff. Amazing. Amazing stuff. It's always uh, great to get your parents to, to smoke weed with you. We Sat didn't smoke down. anything. Just ate. Excuse me. Just get high with you. Just get high. I like to think... You sat down with your parents, you put on Inside Out, and you're like, hey, I have this crazy idea. What if <laughs> this movie was connected to all these other Pixar movies? And they're like, like, shut the Whoa. fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first time they hear about Joe and Pixar theory. <laughs> you know what's funny about that? Everybody assumed that I was very high when I came up with that. I legit had never had weed before at that point in my life. You had never like even taken one weed? No. I never, I never had a pot. <laughs> I was literally like, I was like 22 and I just, nah. but everyone's just like, man, I want whatever this guy's smoking. You know what I mean? Anyway, back to the episode. Uh, well, I mean, you were high. Let's not get this twisted. Hmm? You were just high on life. Okay. Well, that's nice. <laughs> uh, we didn't high talk on a bug's life. I'm sorry. I had to. Jesus Christ. That was good. That was good, Mike. I applaud you for that one. That was good. Um, but yeah, no, cl- bringing the class warfare thing even further, we also have, um, Paul. Paul gets a little bit more fleshing out, right? Like he and Smitty have this whole thing where he's like, oh yeah, I, I smoke weed whenever I can, you know, whatever. And uh, he calls up that guy and that guy kind of like outs him, right? As, you know, he's from New Jersey. He was on a scholarship. Uh, he, he's, you know, he's not the country club guy, right? And he presents Paul, you know, as sort of like, he, he's a very conflicted guy because at one point he presents himself as bohemian, you know, he had that party last season, you know, him uh, dating a black woman and obviously trying to like appear very progressive and, and interesting, you know, as Joan kind of called him out. And then in this episode, uh, you know, he also, though, tries to like fit into that sort of like that mold. Like when he was at Princeton, he wanted to fit into that kind of like, you know, king of the tiger tones, you know, and uh, I bet he was quite a great singer. I, I, I'm i on Paul's side in uh, that, that little argument where they're like, oh, they kicked you out because you were flat or whatever. And uh, yeah, who knows the truth? I did think the best piece of acting we got in this episode was uh, Peggy's re- immediate reaction to his singing because she plays it well of like being impressed and genuine, but also high in her applaud. It's just like a really small moment, but it's one of them. It's, it stayed with me. I thought about like, I wonder how Will's going to react when Paul all of a sudden on cue, which is like, hello, my baby. Hello, my darling. <laughs> I love the W beef toad. Oh, the frog is awesome. Wait, was that your impression of me? I think this is <laughs> my impression of anybody who really likes the, that frog dance. Oh yeah, the what that frog's okay. name from uh, Looney Tunes? I, I just I thought he was just like the the Warner Brothers frog. I don't know frog from Michael J. Frog. Get the fuck out! Is that really his name? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Michigan you J. Seen, frog. Sorry, Michigan. You ever, have you not seen the the short with where that came from? 
That's like an actual Looney Tunes short. I mean, that before like it was oh, definitely I have. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. We we watch Saturday morning cartoons. Um, but on that note, I do I did think. Oh no, go ahead, Mike. You first. I, I just I don't know if you're leaving off Paul, and I did want to mention something about Paul, just specifically. Oh uh, yeah, I was going to mention something about Paul, but for you first, please. Okay. Well, I just we're, we're talking about Madman being timeless, and I think Paul is the closest thing we get to modern day virtue signaling. Um, mm. Which is Paul's whole shtick, right? Um, yes. We already talked about him dating black women and going and, and uh, traveling south with her. But he also just changes no matter what crowd he's in to virtue signal yeah. something different, right? Um, and it's so different than like what Don is doing, you know, pretending to be somebody else and fit in where he doesn't belong. It's like a, it feels just complete, like a different mechanism almost. I think it's more like Don's just better at it. And especially when you consider that like Don's not that much older than Paul and Pete and them. He, you know, like 10 years, if that, mm-hmm. maybe fewer, maybe more like eight. Wise enough to tell Pete not to uh, give out his business card. Yeah. <laughs> I love the little bromance those two have going on. They're just, they're watching, they're making a go of it, those two. But no, I was going to mention real quick about Paul, uh, unless you had something else about Paul, Will. I was just going to say, I mean, I, I think that also applies to sort of classism that uh, Mike was talking about earlier, where even though like Paul and the, who was the guy, the drug dealer? Fisher. Fisher. Even though they, they grew up together, uh, like went to school together and stuff, like he kind of looks down on him and sees him as like lesser, and he like kind of demotes him to being like, you know, like. You're a drug pusher. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then Paul is sort of just like at, at, at that first brush, right? Paul is sort of like, uh, or no, Fisher tells him like you never call all this stuff, and then you see later on why because like Paul and him don't really get like they they're from totally different worlds, and like clearly like there ha- there must have been some kind of rift between them based on like Fisher looking down on Paul, or maybe it was something else uh, along those lines. I was gonna say that that's a, a decent enough segue. Paul's singing voice is fine you know it's like one of those things where he starts singing and you're just like okay you know he can carry a tune but then you hear fisher sing and you're like oh now we're talking about a real tiger tones because he was way more like you know like he was he was making it and then in that moment i just had that feeling where i was like oh you know maybe he was kicked out of the tiger tones i'm just very invested in the tiger tones subplot that they just leave you know up to our imaginations but um no i just thought that uh that's all uh, that's all I really had about that. I will say also just a little bit of nightmare fuel of uh, your drug dealer wanting to actually do the drugs with you. It's literally never a good time. It's like that scene in uh, Boogie Nights. <laughs> but exactly. like if, Af- if Afro Molina was just like, let's sing a song. <laughs> well, what do you what do you make of the I, I know you're you don't approve of what's, you know, our little Karen and Shipka, little Sally Draper what she did in this episode. What do you think's going on there? Because in pre, like when we've seen her act out before, it's been a clear reaction to something, right? What do you think this was? Um, Kids being kids. Well, it's interesting that she, she always kind of wants to be like an adult. Like she's obviously more mature than Bobby. Uh, She feels like, you know, uh, not like able to really understand her parents, especially her dad. Like every time she kind of tries to like foster a relationship with either parent, you know, like her mom's always like watch TV and like her dad's just like go to bed <laughs> and stuff like that. So, yeah. But then grandpa Jean treats her like an adult. Right. He like is like, read this right Roman book or book about right. the Roman empire. Read me this 900 page book about the client of the Roman empire. Pronounce licentiousness. Right. And I was going to ask, I mean, did they uh, release the audiobook with Kieran Shipka reading that? <laughs> yeah, at that age. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> she's a good reader, too, for her age. I mean, she's nine years old in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, she's 
she's reading at a pretty decent level right there. I mean, she's like what third, fourth grade or something. Um, if when you're nine, I think that's like third or fourth, but kind of depends, I guess. Yeah. But I mean, I think it, there's like some attention that I think she's trying to like, uh, there, there's a sense of like, she can form some sort of bond with her grandfather, but I, I feel like she still feels kind of neglected and she's unable to really, uh, I don't know, feel connected in a, in a meaningful way outside of these kind of brief, you know, before she's bed like, this guy should pay me. <laughs> I gotta hang out with him. Are all the you time. saying I'm saying all these $10 words? The least I get is a $5 bill. <laughs> there you go. I, I admit I butchered the ten dollar ten dollar word, so I'll just take five of your of your dollars, Grandpa. I mean, maybe the hint is when uh, you know uh, Don is trying to just give the money to Gene when Gene's looking for it, and he's like, "It's not about the money." So, like, I think maybe that's our hint of like Sally's not doing it about the money. Maybe it is what Will is claiming here that it's like her trying to reach for being an adult. She just sees an opportunity. It's not personal. She's probably just thinking to herself, like, "This old man, he's in this room all day. What are you gonna do? Like, he doesn't need this. I, I'll, just, yeah, I'll take a little bit. I, he loves." me like i'll get away with it right but then of course she feels guilty because she's a human being um i don't know that, that could be it what, what do you think mike i mean I, I definitely think it's stemming from the baby right it's um not getting the attention from her mom everything's gonna be about the baby she's like not the intention anymore um and uh yeah so she's i, I think you're right it's only in direct response to acting out about something and i think that's it none of us are firstborns we can't relate with uh with sally right wait i'm a firstborn what are you talking about i always forget i, I always think that your sister is older than you um the one who just got married trish yeah no she's uh yeah no she's uh third born she's a middle child is nate the second born yeah okay sorry will your, your family constellation makes no sense to me shout out to jess and emily since they didn't get mentioned uh let's name all my <laughs> siblings there you go yeah. All right. Well, so so far we have we've we've named John's parents, your siblings. Like, do I need to bring up my cousins? What's up, Jason and Leslie? <laughs> I was gonna say with with you, Will. Um, you've had literally, I think, like two of your sisters, um, Emily and uh, Trish, have been on the Cinemaholics, haven't they? Uh, Trish was on. Oh no, Emily was on for Annie and Ogre. Right. That's right. Yeah. Emily was on a Ogre. Nate was also on a Ogre. Uh, Trish was on. Cinemaholics. Trish was the first, uh, the first Cinemaholics. Yeah. So she broke the glass ceiling. Right. Um, and Nate was very upset about that. Yeah. Nate was upset <laughs> about that because Nate's the only sibling that, that actually listens to the show. So we'll have to get Nate on at some point. Well, do you ever take him to the, do you ever go to the movies together or like go to screenings yeah. together? Yeah. We've gone to a few screenings together. There's a recipe for success there. Sure. Yeah. Know? I would never have any of my siblings on. Why not? I want Tyrone on the show. Tyrone, I want your maybe. dad. I want Tyrone on to talk about like the new Clint Eastwood movie or something. If there was anybody that I would have on the show, it would be my mom um, because she's the one who like, you know, sort of cultivated me into a film person. Yeah. She's the one that made you a cinemaholic. Yeah. The one who made me watch uh, Deep Blue Sea in the theater yeah. when I was nine. No, I was eight. You, you saw Michael Rappaport fighting a shark and you're like, the movies are for me. The first time I saw, I think, Samuel L. Jackson on the big screen, it wasn't Pulp Fiction. That would have been even worse. Mm -hmm. You know, Will, we should, I don't know if you know this, but Mike's going to go to his first press screening. Oh, yeah. Next week. What's the screening? Uh, yeah, what is can't, it? can't even tell you that, man. Yeah, you Sorry. can. <laughs> <It's super scary. laughs> I'm going to see The Blackening. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I have a, I think I have a screening invite on Tuesday. I'm not sure if I'm able to go, but I'm definitely curious about that one. I heard it's good. It's so, it's, it's just, you know, it's uh, the beginning of an era, you know, Mike's first, he had his <laughs> first screener. <laughs> he had his first screener. Now he's going to his first screening. Next thing you know, he's going to like have a, you know, a syndicated talk show on in Chicago. I'm thinking about starting my own website, uh, something along the lines of being in between the drafts of your drafts. No. Um, it's like in the notes in between the drafts, I think is the name of <laughs> in it. In the notes in between the drafts dot biz. 
Giraffes in between. There you go. John Negroni is my editor.com. I'm mm. spinning around because I, I really I don't have anything else to get into. Uh, so I could get into trivia unless either of you had anything else you wanted to throw throw at the wall here. I I really would like to talk about just the overall comparison of Roger and Don in this episode because I think you get a lot of like obviously Don isn't approving. He calls him a fool, um, and then you even get that call back to season one, right where we have to remember Roger made a pass, multiple passes at. Betty. Mm-hmm. And then you get this whole thing with drunk Jane and he's, he's thought what's going on here. Um, but the ending scene after all this happens and he looks at them and he sees like, Oh, maybe Roger might genuinely love her. Like this could be the, like, this is what happens when you leave the marriage you're in, you're not happy. In, and maybe you can actually find something you're proud of and then causes him to go find Betty and, and make out with her. Right. But is that genuine? Is that him trying to find love? I just think there's a lot you can interpret, interpret from that scene. And I think it's, um, at the kind of like the, the crux of where I feel this season going. I think my interpretation was like, it's almost like the scene is built for him. I think what he's doing is he's trying to recreate the moment that he saw in season one, episode three, I think it was marriage of Figaro. Uh, one of my favorite episodes of that season, when you remember he has the camera and he stumbles upon the couple that are just tenderly kissing each other when nobody else is watching. And I think in that moment, he's feeling insecure. Because Jane is just outed or called him out about like, I knew you two would get back together. And I think that that strikes at him because he knows how like tenuous his marriage is. And he knows that Betty has like kind of gone off to to basically, you know, steam about it. And so I think he is doing what he does best in terms of like, not not, that it's a good thing necessarily, but he is taking something he's observed and he's trying to apply it to his life. You know, it's, it's the whole shtick of the Don Draper character. And I think that's where that's coming from. And I think it's something that genuinely like Betty probably enjoys because they, yeah, like you said, it, it, it starts, it was only a kiss. It was only a kiss. Yeah. Uh, they just kind of, they start macking. Right. Um, but no, I do think that that is like, it's him sort of reacting to uh, Roger sort of challenging him. Right. <clears throat> and it's interesting. You said earlier that there's such a contrast between the two characters. Even at this point, I just, I see so much similarity more than anything else between them. And it's something that I think they also kind of know deep down. They're not that different, but it's so uncomfortable because they're from totally different backgrounds. Roger silver spoon in his mouth. Last name literally means silver. Don, you know, came from nothing. You know, Roger's not fully aware of that, but I think Roger knows like, he's just kind of like, yeah, um, he kind of gets that. In fact, um, you know, I bring up that that scene where he where he does the pass at dawn. <clears throat> I think it was, and he sort of says like, "Oh, maybe you're from there." I forget what that location was, but I wonder if it was either Pennsylvania or Illinois. And I wonder if that's another sort of like draw that they're doing from earlier seasons. I'd have to look into that. But yeah, uh, yeah, we didn't even really talk about Betty kind of having a potential fling. Maybe that's something that's being set up for I a future episode. Yeah, I mean, we just didn't really talk about it much. Uh, just that you know, Betty. You know, I, I think to me that kind of reminds me of how much she's kind of like Dawn, like when she gets like a social faction like this, like before she'd be a little bit more like demure and like, eh, I, I'm married, whatever. But like now she's kind of like, well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, take an interest in me, you know? So I don't know. I don't think that scene meant anything. I don't think it's going to be a big deal at all. Okay. I'll take your, I'll take your word for it, Mike. Who is Rockefeller? Not even a big deal. I could watch more scenes of Don slash John Ham just making different drinks. I was, I was having fun watching him make that, uh, what was it, like uh, old-fashioned? How many times do you think he had to make that for, for the, how many shots did they take? 
I mean, it looked like they did mostly in one. So, I mean, uh, depending on how many takes they did for that. It's a lot of muddled uh, bitters. That was probably like a lot of like iced tea and stuff they use, right? Is that what they use for like liquors and stuff and, and movies and shows? Who knows? Movie magic. Only thing I know is that he's smoking herbals. Yeah, yeah. Let's get into some trivia here. Uh, I don't have a ton. Um, there is a, a moment where Paul quotes uh the t.s Eliot poem the hollow men uh where he says this is the way the world ends this you know the full thing is this is the way the world ends this is the way the world ends this is the way the world ends not with a bang but a whimper very famous poem and uh i think it's kind of drawing to and um there's like a correlation i think between that and grandpa gene who is just sort of saying it's like it's all gonna go to hell just watch because he's, he's reading that book about the fall of the roman empire so it's kind of interesting foreshadowing considering that he's saying like everything's gonna go to hell and everything and this is like you know, it's almost like he's prescient about the JFK stuff, right? Every time you say Grandpa Gene, just because I just watched Willy Wonka last night, <laughs> I keep expecting you to say Grandpa Joe. <laughs> you, you really do have uh, so much to struggle with. Um, mm. My Old Kentucky Home, which is the song that Roger sings uh, at the Derby Day, that's the state song of Kentucky. Uh, it goes back all the way to 1853, and that's by Stephen Foster. Uh, crazy stuff. And then, uh, this this is my favorite one. So there's a moment where Paul is using like a paddle to hit a ball into the trash bin in the office. You look closely, um, or first of all, he says that it's Harry's paddle. Uh, belongs to Harry Crane. And if you look closely, you see that it is Alpha Delta Phi, which is the fraternity that Crane mentioned that he was a member of all the way back in season one, uh, the episode Shoot, where he and Pete are talking about like the Mamie and all that stuff. And they come up with the idea to, you know, for the Nixon-Kennedy election, like doing all the ads and uh, flooding the markets with uh, laxative shit. Uh, sequel laxative um so yeah uh and then uh also the book that sally is reading is called the decline and fall of the roman empire um i don't think we said that very yeah like clearly or like specifically and that's all i have do you read that book john i'll read it to you okay every night so you can Sounds go to good. sleep so i was looking it up uh yeah so i guess uh for the show they don't actually smoke real cigarettes they smoke uh herbal cigarettes is that what you were talking about mike yeah yeah, yeah. but the, i guess john ham smoked 74 of them for the pilot he was not a fan of that yeah i can imagine <laughs> oh there was one more thing um and this is not some trivia i found but just noticed uh so the dance that trudy and peter are doing they're doing the charleston um i don't know if either of you know how to do the charleston i was doing the charleston just last night uh, or no two days yeah. ago um this is something that i don't know if both of you know this but i love swing dancing i used to do swing dancing all the time i've taught it um it's probably the whitest thing about me is that how you met melissa no but one of our first uh <laughs> One of our first dates, I was teaching a class on swing dancing, um, and I invited her uh, to come oh, out. Nice. And uh, yeah, that's where I met one of her best friends. I'm sorry. Also, did you say that's the widest thing about you? Mm. Yeah. Is there is there something that beats it out? I want to hear. John, it. you host a madman podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that is pretty white, but I feel like swing dancing is slightly whiter than that. <laughs> Quite honestly, I feel like if I host a succession podcast, then we're like we're real. I mean. If you bring the swing dance class on for an episode of Mad Men, Men, that'd be the whitest thing you could do. Yeah, I'm at that point. I'm tucking my shirt in. Um, <laughs> yeah. you, know, I, you know what? I know we got to end the episode here, but Succession ended. Series is over. Will's not yep. caught up. He hasn't finished it. But uh, Mike, did you finish it? He never watched it, I don't think. I know everything that happened, but I have not watched an episode I of Succession. I keep thinking you watch Succession as much as I do, and that's... 
The other day, I was talking to my friend uh, who really likes this session. He really loved Andor. And uh, I, I sent him a text that made him not talk to me for a couple days. And I said, I, I don't have to watch TV that makes me feel smart. Interesting. Just Mad Men. We got the rosebud for from Mike Overholz right there. Well, you did watch Barry. We both have seen all of Barry, which for some reason you haven't watched this season, John. I'm going to get to it. I'm gonna it's so good. It's going to be great. It is. It's a riot and a half, man. Just nonstop comedy bits. Speaking of also new season, I think you should leave. Also very good. There's so many better things on oh, yeah. right now to watch. Yeah, what did you think about the new season of I Think You Should Leave, Mike? Oh, we don't even have enough time. I love it. It's, it's so funny. I think it's... I'll say this one thing. It's very specifically... Uh, uh, I think you should leave. Kind of have its own, has its own like style to it, and I think by now people expect it. So I think this season he really leans into that, and it's almost like every skit is like a hat on a hat, but sure. it actually works because it's actually a hat on what you're expecting to happen, and I think it's very funny. I would agree with that in part. I think some of the skits kind of fall into like what's now sort of the formula for I think it should leave. But I think the best ones do what you're saying where it's like they acknowledge like this is where you think it's going to go and they push it to more extreme lengths. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think some of the skits this year are among the best that the show's ever produced. Yeah. Driving Crooner is a fantastic one. There have been so many good memes I've been seeing for the Driving Crooner. Uh, I saw finally someone did the Furious 7 where it's uh, the Paul Walker and then someone, then yeah, Tim Robinson. Yeah. You know what? Sorry, guys, but there are a couple other Mad Men things I forgot to bring up. I'm sorry, but uh, to cut you off on your, I think I, you think I should leave, but I won't. Well, that's um, why I wanted to end it with that. But sure, yeah, let's keep going. <laughs> uh, we didn't bring up Ken, who has that scene where he's just like, "Oh, I wish I had brought a date." While he's watching Pete and Trudy dance, and I hadn't made the connection before, um, but you know, obviously, I, I, I made the connection that Ken and Pete are like competing, right? And so, like, Pete and Trudy are trying to get attention, but also you could read it as like they're trying to make up for the embarrassment um, from like being the ones without kids, right? So, like, there, there's almost like this little simmering like jealousy, and like I'm better than. You know, like Trudy thinking she's better than Jennifer, but Jennifer is the one that has a kid. And then they have, they basically like push them off the dance floor. And you see, like, as that moment is building up, like Trudy is the one who's just like, when, is, when are we all going to dance? Like they mm-hmm. were clearly like planning this. They practiced, like right. they had a whole routine set up and it's just, it's, it's a good moment. Uh, I, I, I do want to, I, I want to stress that one more time before we uh, close this out. I mean, it's a rare win for pete but he also laughed too much at roger's blackface so it's it, it still is an l for for pete overall but is it a win for pete like because that's the thing um when roger says the thing about like oh you just can't stand somebody else's happy blah 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 and then what if what don is saying about roger applies to pete possibly like no one thinks you're happy they think you're foolish you know it's the kind of thing you think about somebody who's like you know drunk or like mm. uh, that there, there's a lot you could read into that judging other people's relationships and what they're like and what they're doing you could easily judge pete and trudy for being like braggy and annoying i was uh when they like all the different people were like introducing their significant others and they finally got to ken i was hoping you know like this is my wife blank and here's my wife blank i was waiting for ken to be like ken cosgrove accounts, accounts. <laughs> yeah it, i wonder what it's like for ken because he hit on jane so relentlessly and he's at this thing like watching her be married to roger like that's got to be weird um extremely weird all right but that'll do it for us on this week's Mad men men we'll be back next week for uh what is the episode after this one? Oh yeah the arrangements should be an interesting one uh but yeah we'll see you all in the next one bye